0: Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information, and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu seminar. It's such a pleasure to introduce Dr. Susan Holman, who's here with us today. Dr. Holman is the John R. Eckrich Chair and Professor of Religion and the Healing Arts at Valparaiso University. An award-winning writer and scholar, she's a New Englander whose career began as a registered dietitian working with low-income families in Boston hospitals and community health centers. She earned her MS from the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy and the Francis Stern Nutrition Center at Tufts New England Medical Center, a Master of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School, and a PhD in Religious Studies from Brown. And she's also served as an academic editor and writer in both religion and global health. Dr. Holman's research focuses on connecting religious history with contemporary issues of disease, poverty, hunger, and the social determinants of health, with a focus on material culture and the Christian tradition in late antiquity. In addition to numerous articles and co-edited monographs, she's the author of books entitled The Hungry or Dying, Beggars and Bishops in Roman Cappadocia, God Knows There's Need, Christian Responses to Poverty, and most recently, Beholden, Religion, Global Health and Human Rights, which appeared in 2015 and was the winner of the 2016 Groemeyer Award in Religion. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome today to our TMC seminar, Dr. Holman, to present a lecture entitled, How Are Early Christian Hospitals Useful or Not in Modern Religious Imaginaries of Clinical and Global Health? Uh, welcome, Dr. Holman, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Kinghorn. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to have this time with you. The the TMC program is such a valuable and inspiring model for thinking about these connections. So I've been watching you from afar for quite a while. Um, My title is a long question. So I thought I would begin by saying a little bit about where it comes from, which was partly in what you just heard um, and also how my own journey brought me to it. The journey began after I had finished a master's program in nutrition, and that program included two years of clinical and community health rotations. Uh, and in, during the rotations, I realized I was most energized by social justice um, vision of public health. And so my first job was in the South End Community Health Center at the same time as Dr. Gloria Hammond was there, who spoke here um, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Uh, She's just amazing. We didn't work together directly. This was quite a long time ago, and I didn't know anything about her faith connections. Uh, But she was even then a real inspiration for everybody at the clinic and often the pediatrician of the families I was working with. Now, I'm the kind of introvert who can only think clearly when I am completely and utterly alone. And so as you can imagine, I was working out uh, at a desk in the middle of a large open clinic, And after about a year of this, it was clear that clinical counseling and telling people what to eat was not really a great career fit for me. But the, the nonstop conversations that were going on did show me the, the impact that people's religious history and culture has on shaping family health choices. So I started to take theology courses, and I realized that there were these fourth century Greek sermons on hunger, disease, and justice that were just begging for more attention. And they eventually became the focus of my dissertation. Um, So I stayed in New England, I decided to stay at home and keep on with what was clearly more my calling in research and writing. And so for more than 20 years to pay the bills, I also worked part-time as a writer editor with physicians in a Boston hospital. And I really do love the hospital and the healthcare setting. Um, And this worked as long as I had a tiny closet-sized office, I mean, that's a real privilege, with a door that shut. Uh, It also helps that I could separate my day job from my vocation as a scholar and writer in early Christian studies. And as I walked this space, I became more and more conscious of the big divide between evidence-based science and religious narratives of medicine and public health. Um, Outside of bioethics, health science rarely connects with religious history, but if religion is a social determinant of health, then religious history matters because it shapes culture, behaviors, and assumptions, and health, especially when it fails us, is also a social determinant of religious choices. And so that brings me to the question I wanted to explore today. How are early Christian hospitals helpful or not in the way that we as people of faith might imagine or want to imagine clinical and global health? And if so, how? What were these hospitals like? And more to the point, why does it matter? It matters because a certain stereotype persists. As one doctor put it in 1960, philanthropic social welfare and medical assistance institutions in the Byzantine Empire were the first fully equipped European hospital. In 1985, Demetrius Constantelis, in his now classic work on philanthropy, said this claim seems to exaggerate. He argued that such hospitals and clinics from the fourth century and later were parallel to the scientific progress and the medical means of the Byzantine Middle Ages. Yet in 1997, Timothy Miller voiced a still prevailing view that early Christian hospitals occupied a space in the Byzantine world similar to that of hospitals in 20th century society and especially to the place of healthcare centers maintained by modern Christian churches. So hospitals are connected to worship space. Keep that in the back of your mind. Medical historians thus keep wrestling with whether and how we might usefully compare past and present. Some, like Gary Ferngren here, remind us that it was only in the 19th century that the hospital lost its association with poverty and charity and became instead the center of medical care. But agree or disagree, all of these historians point back to 4th century hospitals, particularly that of Basil of Caesarea. If this is not just a symbolic appeal for a moral model, then it might be practically helpful for people of faith who care about the modern hospital system, such as ourselves, to think about what these historic texts actually do or do not say. My focus here is on early Christian institutionalization of care for the sick. And hospitals are just one detail in a broad landscape. In this talk today, I'm gonna say little or nothing about Christian views on illness and healing in the New Testament little or nothing about Greco-Roman medicine that was the norm for this era or how doctors were trained or what we call popular medicine. But just to give you a very quick one paragraph background, we need to keep in mind that the ancient world had no alternative or complementary medicine. Even official medical practice was barely standardized at best. And most people when sick would try anything. Medicine always overlapped with religion, Nobody had health insurance, care and coverage depended on who you knew and where your gender, age, and class fit in the social hierarchy. Literacy and health standards were often at worst very low and at best unpredictable. Despite many surviving texts of Galen, Hippocrates, medical collections, encyclopedias, and medical commentaries, most Greco-Roman healthcare happened either at home or in a healer's market shop. This holy doctor treating a patient's eyes is from a church in the Christian era, but it might also suggest the typical environment of paid physicians back to the first century. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it made sense to pay an innkeeper for medical care because there was actually no institution that cared for the sick poor. We know a little bit about valetudinaria, which were Roman spaces for sick soldiers and maybe slaves around the first century, but the evidence is spotty and controversial. The first century medical writer Celsus criticized them as too big to pay attention to individual symptoms that were necessary for proper diagnoses. And Christian comments on Asclepius are more about miracles, they're not really about institutional care for the poor. So, what do we know? To begin, most agree, including Peregrine Horton and Vivian Nutton, who are two of the most prolific and carefully critical medical historians, that the first hospitals were Christian and they were mid fourth century. They also agree that discussion of hospitals can safely begin with Basil. So let's now look at what we know about Basil's hospital. Basil is widely noted for building a poorhouse hospital in Greek, Atokotrophion. Clearly, he did but his institution is sometimes idealized beyond recognition. This on the right is uh, the earliest picture we have imagining his social action, but it's painted 500 years later uh, for a very small audience. So this is like us painting exactly what was going on in Luther's day. So I think it's useful to sort out exactly what we do and don't know about Basil's healthcare efforts. They took shape in two different health-related crises between the late 360s and 379 when he died. First was famine and drought with widespread starvation, and second was the visible presence of deformed homeless uh, sick beggars. The text calls them lepers, but their symptoms probably reflect different causes like malnutrition, injuries, economic crisis, warfare, or just living rough. So first, starvation. Uh, And I've said more about this in other places. Basil responded to the drought by funding and personally giving out food. He mentions this in one letter to his, and his brother Gregory of Nyssa and their friend Gregory of Nazianzus both also mention it in their funeral sermons on Basil. Uh, This food aid probably happened from at least two of the family's monastic households. These were not hospitals, they were distribution points for relief. We actually know nothing about the housing or the healthcare circumstances of these people who were starving, although Basil describes their bodies very vividly. But we know really only that they had suffered starvation, and now they were getting food. Uh, Basil's sister Macrina, there's an icon of her on the right, led grain distribution from her monastic household. She also took in starving homeless women who her brother says called her their mother and nurse, whom she had rescued when they had been exposed at the roadside at the time of famine. Gregory of Nyssa met these women at her death because they were part of a household, but it was not a clinic. Basil's Hospital first appears in a text that's actually separate from that on his famine relief. Gregory of Nazianzus has these two descriptions, but they're in different chapters of his orations, funeral oration for Basil. Uh, and the hospital appears only with reference to the second problem, the homeless and deformed sick. Our most detailed description is Basil's letter 94 to the governor where he appeals for government support. He starts this letter, and I haven't given you that bit, um, by describing the complex with uh, a magnificent church and a bishop's home that has suitable quarters that freely welcomes your magistrates yourselves and your retinues, retinue he tells the governor, And it's only then after sort of this political talk that he mentions the sick poor, writing, who do we wrong when we build hospices for strangers, for those who visit us while on a journey, for those who require some care because of sickness, and when we extend to the latter the necessary comforts, such as nurses, physicians, beasts for travel and attendance. There must also be occupations to go with these, both those that are necessary for gaining a livelihood and also such as have been discovered for a decorous mo- manner of living. And again, they need still other buildings equipped for their pursuits, all of which are an ornament to the locality. Uh, and if, if, if many of you, this is very familiar to many of you, just keep in mind, I'm trying to focus on what do the sources actually say? So what do these details tell us? To highlight, they tell us that there was a building associated with or nearby the church and some sort of grand B&B that was suitable for um, rich potential benefactors. Uh, the second, they tell us the poorhouse was for strangers and traveling visitors. And third, that it provided these services highlighted here. Care for the sick, however defined. Available nurses and physicians, however defined. Um, a stable. This was this was a a, a part of the world very much um, known for its horses. They provided some kind of employment opportunity, access, and other buildings undefined. In our hunt for more details, we know from Basil's letter 150 that I've given you here at the top that friends and ordinary visitors could stay overnight there. Um, Gregory of Nazianz's funeral oration Calls it the new city, the storehouse of piety, where Basil greeted the sick like brothers, caring for their bodies and the dressing of their wounds, cleansing leprosy not by word but indeed. He also describes the dressing of their wounds in Basil's imitation of Christ, cleansing leprosy not by word but indeed. Um, we might also assume that Basil also employed his own servants, or rather his fellow slaves and co workers in the hospital care but in fact Gregory only mentions Basil's servants in the chapter on famine relief. Um, so again if you're if you're going to be really specific about what comes where um, the servants are only mentioned related to famine, but we can probably assume they were present in both contexts. But this in short is all we really know about those who saw it firsthand at its creation. A hundred years later the place is still in operation. Um, although the, the people ran away at some point when they didn't have enough food. Um, we still have very few details. the historian describes it as a place for the poor where they being in grievous bodily affliction were especially in need of care and cure. And Soseman simply calls it a ho- celebrated hospice for the poor. So the bottom line is that he Basil built a healthcare institution of some kind for the poor, but he was not the first. We find Trofea for the poor or strangers, including sick, lepers, and paralytics, named and mentioned with no details 20 years earlier, around 350, in four different places circled here, Antioch, Constantinople, Sebast, and Armenia. These were all places in Basil's social orbit, where he had lots of friends and correspondents. These places were all associated with Christian monks, bishops, and sometimes mentioned government-funded philanthropy, uh, land grants or tax exemptions. These likely, inf- very likely, influenced his construction of the more famous Basilea. But notice what these descriptions do not say. There's nothing about who the nurses or doctors were, what they actually did their pay scale, nothing about supplies, not a word about surgery or health system management, no description of what the space actually looked like, and no recognizable pharmacy. And so it's this profound absence of detail that makes me ask how on earth did this become the glorious prototype of our modern medical facility. Now, in part, the answer is in Basil's enduring influence. It's more of a soft connection on both monasticism and theology, but that's for another discussion. More often, it's because popular narratives, even today, conflate Basil's famine and healthcare efforts and the details from other texts or other sites later on. And probably one of the most endearing examples of this is this YouTube um, ad for a children's pop-up book um, in in Greek, but with an English uh, translation, I think also available, where you can build the Basilead exactly the same way Basil built it. The authors patched together at best a creative imaginary with all these parts on the bottom here. Uh, It's not always wrong. Um, I can see where they got these these pieces, um, but it can be anachronistic in some ways. So what matters for us though, is that these fourth century hospitals were part of a larger movement. By the fifth century, we have more stories, more details, some with clean beds, others mention sick women, others lists of volunteers or consultant staff who practiced medicine as it was understood in antiquity. Uh, By the 6th century, the Emperor Justinian built a number of hospital-like places, and the trend kept spreading. The most often cited example is a detailed 12th-century monastic typicon, or written rule, a verbal blueprint for a government-funded Quater monastery, a church and hospital complex in Constantinople, dated to 1136. There's, there's controversy about how normative the Pantocrator Hospital was, or even if what it recommends was ever put into place at all. Uh, even with imperial funds, it seems unsustainable. And Horden notes that there's no evidence that medicine was practiced there after about 1150. So this is like a 14-year-old flourishing period. But we do have many tiny glimpses of what hospitals were like between 400 and 700 CE. In his Yale dissertation, Mark Anderson in 2012, um, I've given you the link, it's freely available on academia.edu, analyzed texts about 297 so-called hospitals, hospices, and shelters for the poor around the Mediterranean from this period. His criteria pulled every example of what he called a named space dedicated to the extended care of the needy. What they had in common, he found, were beds, free food, a place to rest, and you never got a bill at the end of your visit. Variations abounded. For instance, 131 of the 297 don't even mention care for the sick. Only 27, less than 10%, mentioned doctors. And 49 of the 297 were built for, by, or administ- administered by women. Pointing back to Basil's influence, Anderson concludes that what the Cappadocians provided was a framework for providing charity in durable institutions, the rise of hospitals and shelters is best compared, he says, not with the valetudinaria and Asclepia, but with the proliferation of churches and monasteries in the fourth century. So again, Christian hospitals were first and foremost religious spaces, keep that in mind. We know more, relatively speaking, about later monastic hospitals, particularly in Egypt. Shenoudi's 5th century canons describe healthcare services that include both men and women physicians and nurses. Andrew Chrislip has argued that in these monasteries we see the emergence of of nurses as a profession distinct from both physicians and lay caregivers. Diet, surgery, and pharmacology, the triad of ancient medicine are all part of Shenuti's therapeutics. In Judea, the monastery of Theodosius had several different places to care for the sick, whether they were community members, visitors, the aged, or mentally ill. We also have details about healthcare in, healing, in Christian healing shrines, where miracle saints healed for free. Surviving art and archaeology includes this chapel in a church in Rome by about 700, where holy doctors are painted on the walls and where we know there was a grain storage facility next door. Such healing shrines can elide church, miracle site, and hospital into a complex thread of overlapping identities. Ordinary human physicians are sometimes criticized by the, te- the few texts we have about these places sometimes criticize doctors for a profit motive, for ignorance, or as heretics, but they are not always at odds um, with the churches or the shrines. Basil, for example, wrote friendly letters to several physicians, and we know Theodoret had a priest in his church who moonlighted with a medical practice on the side. But what about medical education? So we assume doctors are trained in hospitals, but this doesn't seem as universally true in late antiquity. Horton, for instance, finds no Greek and Latin texts that mention doctors rounding wards with students in tow at all. In 2003, the late David Bennett analyzed the only six texts he could find of medical advice that was deliberately connected with any Christian hospital before about the 11th century. I think Greek and Latin he was limiting it to. Um, Six is a tiny number and the medicine in them apparently is unremarkable. Apparently they contain no philosophical theory, virtually no humoral theory, no semiology, little quantification of ingredients. But whether or not in hospitals, medical education of course took place. Um, On the left is a, a, learning space in Alexandria that may or may not relate to medical training, but was a part of a larger educational space. And on the right in the, is the elaborate curriculum of readings from Galen and Hippocrates that medical teachers and schools used in Alexandria by the sixth and seventh centuries. And from the Persian Empire, Syriac Christian texts describe both medical education and a hospital connected with the school of Nisibis by the sixth century. These, the canons of of this Nisibis school mention doctors and hospitals in several places. And one uh, later writer, Abdisha, who I've quoted here, says of the school at the youth, whoever is set apart for the study of medicine will be sent to the hospital. Islamic hospitals are way outside our focus. I know very little or nothing about them, but this particular Islamic site has so much in common with Basil's story that it begs wondering if it is near or where his hospital once stood. Um, It's called the Gevher Nasibe Hospital. It's now a museum. Uh, It's downtown, uh, it's in downtown in Kayseri today, which is the city where, uh, which was Basil's own city of Caesarea, where he built his hospital. Modern Turkish tourism, as you can see, calls this the um, world's first hospital, though it dates 800 years after Basel to 1205. But like Basel's complex, it included a hospital, the the left there's the floor plan, Um, it included a hospital, um, a school or madrasa on the right, um, which implies a place for worship as well. It's within a mile of the 6th century city walls, which places it firmly within the area that was the Byzantine city famous for Basil's hospital. Basil's church uh, included a sacred spring, and this site we know also had baths. Now, there's no reliable evidence to clearly link the Gefernacibe with the Basileon, and excavation is unlikely right in this downtown area. So I'm offering this simply as circumstantial conjecture at at very best. It's a total, um, it's a total wild card here. But I think it does give us a visual hint of the possible continuities, which brings us back to the question, how are or how might such texts be useful or pertinent to religious imaginaries of clinical and global health today? Do they offer any value for faith-based engagement in modern health system strengthening? Um, and actually, I think there's no blanket answer to this question, uh, so I'll start with a hedge. Um, much depends on which texts we mean, who we are, how we define ancient healthcare services, what part of their theological and social mindset we value or condemn, and how we might imagine clinical and global health past and present. That said, early Christian hospitals do have certain obvious features in common with modern systems, on the left at the top there. In both, the patients are displaced from home. In both, they lack privacy. In both, they're forced sick into group spaces, are at the mercy of carers, and perhaps worry as much about treatment as sickness. It's easy to see flaws in ancient healthcare, but we're also aware these days how our own hospitals fall short, especially for the poor. I would suggest that these early Christian hospitals are more pertinent for their differences from modern systems rather than for any real or constructed similarities. These differences on the right, as just a few suggestions, included ideal features that we wish modern care had more of. Uh, such as affordable services, a longer stay for rest and recovery, personalized care, a commitment to prioritize the needy. It was a commitment. They, you know, We don't know how well it was actualized. A conscious theological ethic of human value and dignity that was supposed to shape the entire organization. Their problems in our mind included patronizing power control, And uh, social practices, these are the concerns below, social practices that we condemn, like slavery and gender discrimination. As far as we can tell from these ancient texts, those who were doing a lot of the dirty work were slaves or unpaid monks. Um, But these problems perhaps need not disqualify the value of these historical human voices who agonized over the pain and injustice of afflicted bodies that they identified with the glory of the divine. Now, in addition to these very general features, pro and con, I want to conclude by highlighting two therapeutic values in these texts that I think speak especially to our current uh, situation and the pandemic. One is the power of touch in healing and the second is what I would call evocative airspace or air, breath and the generation of sound, including word and music in both clinical healing and spiritual practices. First, touch. Gregory of Nazianzus says that Basil ministered to the bodies and the souls of the needy, combining marks of respect with the necessary refreshment, thus affording them relief in two ways. Therapeutic touch is part of ethical feeding with dignity and respect for the other. Macrina noted the importance of medical touch in her deathbed dialogue with her brother Gregory of Nyssa on the philosophy, on the resurrection of the soul. Um, Gregory tells us that she was, as she was talking, she pointed to another man in the room who is identified as, quote, the physician seated beside her attending to her bodily condition. So we know that tells us that her monastery had at least one ordinary physician had been or called as a consult as she was dying. Uh, His ability to diagnose using skills of touch, Macrina says, demonstrate the intellectual nature of the soul. Touch, sight, hearing, and even smell, she argued, have diagnostic value in physical medical care because of the soul. The Gregory's sermons on lepers also emphasize the spiritual value of touch, despite fears about contagion, Um, values, not only for those who are touched, but for the person who um, has perhaps more sin and more disease than the person they're touching spiritually, according to the two Gregory's uh, narratives. Such texts prod our own anguish over COVID isolation measures And we may recall Dr. Daniela Lamas' New York Times apology to her patients and their families last May, when she said humanity has been a casualty of this pandemic. Clinical medicine in antiquity may have been abysmal and certainly lacked PPE, but then as now, the ideal vision for healing had human contact at its core. Second, breath, or what might be called evocative airspace. Today's concern for respirator access and aerosolization makes air both our friend and enemy. If I had infinite time, I would hear say more about air and breath in ancient medicine, religious imagery and theology. Uh, my colleague Mike Motia, for example, has a project on spatial theology as it connects to holiness in early Christian hospitals. Um, but in the interest of time and this seminar's focus on modern practice, I con- I'll conclude with a story of what Basil's idea of airspace might suggest for us today. In 2011, Horton suggested that we best understand the medicalization of Byzantine hospitals when we have also understood the significance for medical history of the psalm. And Horton is not a religious Uh, writer, and this unusual suggestion points back to the way hospitals overlapped with worship practices. He tells the story of a Sufi mystic who, on pilgrimage from Spain to Mecca, witnessed Byzantine hospitals. The hospital doctors, he said, treated the sick by forcing them to listen twice a week to a strange-sounding instrument, a music that went on and on that might even kill them if they had too much of it. This really weird story best makes sense when we realize that the Sufi is probably describing the long-chanted liturgies that were standard in monastic worship, still part of orthodoxy today. The texts of these uh, chanted liturgies are heavy on the Book of Psalms. Even in the West, St. Benedict's 6th century rule ordered chanting all 150 psalms at least once a week. 200 years before Benedict, Basil's first homily on the psalms also highlighted their medicinal value. He said, all scripture is useful that we, as if in a general hospital for souls, may select the remedy of each person's condition. The Book of Psalms, the common treasure of good doctrine, old wounds of souls, it cures completely and to the recently wounded, it brings speedy improvement. And we also use melody mingled with the doctrines, just as wise physicians giving bitter drugs smear the cup with honey." Or to, paraphr- to paraphrase, um, Father Maximus Constus gave a talk last year uh, talking about this. Um, he said, like most hospitals, scripture comes equipped with an intensive care unit, the Book of Psalms. We're healed not simply by the words, but as we experience them in combination with music, according to Basil. Now, the Sufi story reminds us that this ICU of the Psalms is not just metaphor. Psalm therapy informed both the hospital practice he saw witnessed and his worry that too much controlled psalmody might kill you. Early Christian air control was not ecumenical. Atmospheric health is not just breathing, but it's the shape and the sound of vocalizations. These writers also shared ancient humoral views that different air qualities that could help or harm wellness depending on the nature of the air, the weather, one's inner balance and geography, um, and for them, theology and speech. In fact, Macrina's Death Dialogue is constructed from the start as as her therapeutic words that she means to help cure her brother's disordered soul as he's dealing with grief over losing two of his siblings to death because he goes, Basil's just died, so he goes to tell her and then he finds she's dying too. So again, you know, talk about context for present. Now, I'm not suggesting that we replace technology or PPE with singing psalms or laughter therapy as you see in this example, although maybe there's a way to do that safely. Liturgy in the ancient world was about worship but it also simply meant public service in the interest of the common good. These voices from early Christian therapeutics remind us of the power of media, word, sound, music, both positive and negative in our own atmospheric present. This Michigan nurse made a similar point just last week at the Washington Memorial Service for COVID victims where she said she sings and she believes that it helps to heal. Such ideas might invite us to think with hope and creativity about how we design and use air and sound safely and ethically in hospital care today. And there's so much more we can think about if we broaden these conversations to public and community health. Um, But I'll stop here and, and say thank you so much.
0: Dr. Holman, thank you so much. That was an amazing talk, and we really are grateful for that context in that, that history. Thinking about your previous experience uh, working in nutrition, for low-income families in the Boston area, or thinking of your location now in northern Indiana, uh, you have you've mentioned a bit about how we think about specifically healthcare in the context of COVID, but what would you hope for would be different in terms of the practices of healthcare when you walk into a hospital? What would you hope would, would look different or feel different as a result of this history that you told us today?
1: I'm not really great at answering questions. So I will do my best with this conversation. I'm delighted to have a conversation. I think more more humanization. I mean, I think this is I, I, many of I've, these are many things I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Um, I think there needs to be more continuity. I think the whole move, this is sort of my my big issue right now when I think about what would be different, The the whole hospitalist movement Results in just fragmentation of care that doesn't help people, and I totally understand the you know the need for hospitalists, etc. But I think the biggest, and I, I think because I've seen this in family member in the what it's done to family members is just because there's so much fragmentation of care, people get they fall through the cracks. Care things happen that are not. Um, that don't make sense. There's there's no, a family member might expect support that isn't there because they don't know how to ask for it. And I think um, as imperfect as the early Christian hospital systems were, there was more of a, of a focus on continuity um, that we really miss and lack today.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it seems to me that health systems now are so uh, separated off from other institutions that we might think uh, might provide uh, care for unhoused people or job support or occupational support. And it sounds like these institutions that you're describing, I mean, they were in a very different context, but they didn't see a way to bracket their missions like that. It was all of one all of one piece, including supportive occupation, which is really, really interesting.
1: We don't know Thank what that you. meant. I mean, we, you know, and yeah. some of the, for example, the healing shrines, um, the narratives we have from healing shrines suggest that often in them, this is two or 300 years later, after Basil the occupations that the patients who were there, um, who, who might stay there for weeks or months, um, will then become essentially volunteer assistants in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that they're offering employment might sound better to us than it might look in reality.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I want to thank you again, Datong, for being with us. Um, this is this is really a terrific talk, and I uh, your your slide of modern day uh, Kayseri and the possibility that we might actually have this the you know roughly where uh, Saint Basil's institution was was uh, was really great, and I think also just providing more detail and complexity to these institutions that we talk about, but uh, understanding what we don't what we do and don't know about them. So thank you very much.